Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And as we move through the book of Matthew, we land today in verses 31 and 32. Just as a reminder, um, the primary form of preaching here at Summit Bible Church, well, really all of our preaching is expositional. That is, we're seeking to draw out from the Scriptures what God intended and what He wrote. Uh, We're not bringing our opinions or our topics to the table. We're drawing them out from Scripture, and we do that systematically. We move uh, through books start to finish. And so today we land on verses 31 to 32 because that's where we're at. We're moving along through the book of Matthew, and we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're specifically in this section this section dealing with divorce. Now, according to an article written in February of 2019, a couple in Kuwait holds the record for the shortest marriage. After just three minutes of being husband and wife, divorce papers were filed. The story goes, as the new wife was walking out of the courthouse, she tripped and fell over her dress. Instead of helping her, the new husband laughed. She marched straight back into the judge and demanded a divorce. That was the end of their marriage. (laughs) Several divorce lawyers share ridiculous reasons why couple file for divorce. One lawyer said his client was baffled by how much toilet paper her husband used. She was a thrifter, a coupon lady, and thought her husband was splurging on the squares. True story. Another lawyer said his client was fed up after seven years of marriage because his wife could not get his coffee order right in the morning. She doesn't get me, he says. Finally, One lawyer said that her clients shared a cat. Both loved the cat, and they could not agree on the name. So the husband called her Lily. The wife called her Snowball. They both became jealous of each other's relationship with the cat and decided that they could no longer share her, so they filed for divorce and fought tooth and nail for custody of the cat. True story. Now, why we can chuckle and laugh a little bit at the ridiculousness of these cases, and they are ridiculous. We remember that divorce is no laughing matter to God. There is a big difference between the world's attitude toward divorce and God's attitude toward divorce revealed in Scripture. And this is what Jesus exposes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus exposes just the vast chasm between society's view of divorce and God's view of divorce. Now, every person in this room, undoubtedly, has been touched by divorce. And its consequences. Surely you may have a close friend who went through a divorce. 
maybe a family member, maybe your own parents were divorced, and even some of you have gone through a divorce. It's painful. It is difficult. And it is hard. So I understand this is a sensitive topic. It's relevant today. Interesting enough, the first century attitude toward divorce is not much different than the 21st century attitude towards divorce. So what Jesus says in this passage touches our hearts just as much as it did those he was speaking to in the first century. So what does Jesus say about the heart in divorce? Because he's dealing with the heart in this section, remember? The heart of adultery is lust. The heart of murder is anger. And now, the heart of divorce. What does Jesus say? Well, first, we need to understand what they say. And so that's point number one. They say divorce is a transaction. Divorce is a transaction. Simply that. It's serving the papers, essentially. So Matthew 5, verse 31, look at the text. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I want you to notice two things. First of all, there's no reason or cause given. There's no reason for the divorce given. There's no cause. There's no ground. He just simply says, whoever, what does it say? Whoever divorces his wife. Simply put. Secondly, I want you to notice that the only requirement is in the certificate. Essentially, if you divorce, just make sure you serve the papers. That's what they say. They view divorce more like a transaction, uh, an exchanging of papers, really. Now, what is Jesus getting at here? Jesus is quoting the popular interpretation of the divorce law in Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'd like you to turn there in your Bibles. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in your Bible. Deuteronomy verse or sorry chapter 24 and it's just verses 1 to 4. It's a small little section here. Now, this section of Deuteronomy, you could label the miscellaneous laws. It's kind of the junk drawer of the law. Okay? It's got a lot of very specific nuanced laws for very specific situations. You know that tool in your drunk in your drunk drawer. <laughs> that tool in your junk drawer that can only be used for that one thing. You know, maybe with some assembly kits that you get, you get this tool that only fits the the screw or the bolt for this little piece of furniture. And so you use it to assemble it and and you keep that tool in your junk drawer because if you lose that tool, you're not going to be able to fix that piece of furniture. Right? You're done. But that tool is virtually useless for every other piece of furniture in your house. Are you following me? It's kind of what this divorce law is. It is a very specific scenario that God gives 
for a very specific law, a tool that's to be used in this scenario. This passage, we're going to read it together, is a big when-then statement. Essentially, when this happens, then do this. Or, when this happens, then don't do that. That's what this big section is, okay? So I want you just to follow the text, and let's read it together. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then, then her former husband, the first husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Very specific. Very detailed situation that he gives here. What is the actual law or the actual command in this passage? It comes after the then. The actual command is that the former husband may not take her again to be his wife. There is no command to divorce. It's a command to not remarry. That's very important. Because the Pharisees and the scribes twist that. Now, why? Why does God command this first husband to not take again his ex-wife? Look in the text, verse 4, because she has been defiled. For that, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Now, why is this law here? Who does it protect? Well, at first glance, you might think, well, it protects that first husband, right? From remarrying that wife who has committed adultery? No, it's actually protecting the woman. This law actually protects the woman who has been divorced or sent away twice. Why? Think about this. Why would the first husband want her back? Well, there's two reasons. Two reasons that he would want her back and neither of them are honorable. First, he would want her money. Because if she remarries him, then he would get a second dowry and possibly if the second husband passed, then he would get a part of that man's estate to himself. So this section comes, by the way, right before the next section on stealing your neighbor's property. And so this man could desire to remarry that woman so that he could have her money. That's maybe one reason, one possible reason he would want her back. The second 
is that he would want her sexually. She's already committed indecent acts, according to verse 1. She has been forced into adultery and slept now with another man. And in a kind of perverse way, he may desire her again. And this is not a stretch either because of just the rampant perversity in Israel and the surrounding pagan culture. Regardless, whether it's for money or if it's for sex, to remarry her is to use and abuse her. Essentially, God is saying she has already been defiled. Don't again defile her. Now this is the law. A very specific tool for a very specific scenario. Notice that nowhere in this whole scenario does God endorse, does He bless, or condone divorce. If anything, this law shows that God stands against it. But, the scribes and the Pharisees see an opportunity here. Because it doesn't, God doesn't explicitly say, I, I don't want you to divorce, they see an inch and they take a mile. And don't we do that with our sin? We all do that in certain ways. We see an opportunity. Oh, so you're saying I could go this far. And we take it to the limit. And that's exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes went, except they went beyond the limit and actually twisted the Scripture. There are two schools of thought developed by the different rabbis in the first century around this law. Okay, So they're looking back at this little section of Scripture and deciding what the divorce law will be. You have the school of Shammai, and then you have the school of Hillel. Now this is important. I know these names are like crazy to you and you think, man, Morgan, this is way too much detail, but it's important. Two schools of thought. The school of Shammai was conservative. They had a conservative interpretation of this passage. You remember why the first husband divorced his wife? Because he found some indecency in her. Now, the conservative interpretation of that indecency is that she commits some kind of act of sexual immorality. It was maybe just short of adultery. Maybe, you know, being forward and putting herself onto another man or something to that effect. Maybe she didn't commit the act of adultery, but indecency was generally understood as that is some kind of sexual perversion that he finds in his wife. So the school of Shammai would say there is at least a ground for divorce here because she has committed sexual immorality. And so there must be a reason, a ground, dealing with sexual immorality in order to divorce. Now, the school of Hillel was different. They were more liberal and progressive with their interpretation of the law. They said that an indecency could be really anything that displeases the husband. Maybe she burnt your food. Maybe the laundry wasn't picked up. Maybe you felt or sensed a disrespectful tone in her response. Well, that's indecent. And so those are grounds for divorce, according to this divorce law. Very loose interpretation. This interpretation widened permission for divorce to really anything. Now, which do you think society leaned towards? 
Jewish culture? Of course. The school of Hillel. The liberal interpretation. The, the interpretation that gives them more permission. More opportunity to divorce at pleasure. And to divorce over anything that they wanted. This was the popular interpretation that Jesus was speaking to in his Sermon on the Mount. This kind of no grounds, no fault divorce that was rampant everywhere. You know, we would call it divorcing over irreconcilable differences. And that could be any difference. Whether you name a cat something, you know, and that's a difference of opinion there. Whatever. Because of this permission, divorce was rampant. And so... We even sense this twisting of Scripture by what the Pharisees say in Matthew 19. They said to Jesus, look at what they say. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Did Moses command it? No. He never commanded it. Jesus corrects their interpretation and says, he permitted it. It is because of your hardness of hearts. But the Pharisees and the scribes turned this specific permission into a universal command. They exploit the Scriptures and misapply it to their own benefit. And we're guilty of the same thing in a variety of different ways. So, they say divorce is simply a transaction. They taught if you find something indecent in your wife, maybe she's a bad cook or she treats a guest rudely, or she gives your cat a name you don't like, irreconcilable differences, we might call it, then all you got to do is serve the papers and send her away. And you can be off the hook, let go. Like Moses said, they would say. So they say divorce is simply a transaction. We're not interested in what they say. We're interested in what Jesus says So point number two, Jesus says, divorce is a violation. Divorce is a violation. Look at the words of Christ in verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Adultery. Divorce and adultery go hand in hand. Jesus references the exact scenario in Deuteronomy 24. Did you notice that? And who does he put the responsibility and guilt on? The first husband. The first husband who sent her away, if it wasn't for sexual immorality, he is guilty of causing her to commit adultery. And by the way, if that first husband decides to remarry her after her second divorce, he commits adultery. Double whammy. Jesus corrects their wrong interpretation and shows them the heart of it. God's heart. God's Eyes, how he sees that whole scenario playing out. Divorce produces adultery. It produces adultery. 
They are both outward expressions of unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness to one another and unfaithfulness to God. You know, the word for divorce in the Greek is apoluo. It comes from the Greek root luo, which is in some sense is translated to destroy or to reduce something into its components by violence. What does divorce destroy? Some quickly think of the family, specifically the children, and rightfully so. Who really feels the brunt of divorce when the couple has kids? It's the kids. I don't need to walk you through the statistics on the harmful effects of divorce because many of you have lived through it and seen it. You have firsthand knowledge of them. There's confusion. There's distrust. There's resentment. There's a lack of discipline. There's a fear of abandonment. There's separation anxiety and there's depression. Even the most amicable divorces have produced these kinds of negative effects on the kids. And people will often say, please, don't divorce for the sake of the children. I think they're right to say that. Because we know divorce destroys not only the relationship between a husband and a wife, but it destroys that nucleus of stability and safety in the child's life. The parent's relationship. And so if that's destroyed, it really undoes the whole family. But... Jesus doesn't say don't divorce for the sake of the kids here. His emphasis is on the sin of adultery. There's an even more important element of marriage that divorce destroys. Why does Jesus relate divorce to adultery? Adultery, if you remember last week, is just is unfaithfulness to your marriage covenant. What God has designed for you to, uh, the sexual intimacy, the romantic intimacy is designed for your marriage. You're taking elsewhere to another. How are the two related? Look, we need to look at the Old Testament to really see a vivid picture of God's attitude toward divorce and adultery. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14 and verse 16. I have them up on the screen. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been unfaithful, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Covenant. Look at verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel. The man covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be unfaithful. God takes both of those sins, adultery and divorce, and says, the root of both of those things is unfaithfulness. You've broken something. You've broken what? Your covenant. You've destroyed the covenant. 
You have severed it with violence. Verse 16. I want to read the New American Standard Version because I think it's a better and a more vivid illustration of how God sees divorce. Malachi 2.16 in the New American Standard reads this way, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed in your spirit and that you do not deal treacherously. Do you wonder what God thinks about the staggering divorce rate and the rampant infidelity in marriages across all our society? God sees men and women with weapons in hand and blood on their clothes. They have destroyed His covenant with violence and they're guilty. Guilty before Him. It is unfaithfulness. It is adultery. It is abandonment against the precious marriage union of God. We need to see divorce for what it really is. Without justifiable grounds. It's not just a transaction, a matter of handing over paper. It's a severing and a destroying of God's precious marriage union. This is what Jesus appeals to in Matthew 19. The Pharisees came to Him and they tested Him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two. But they're one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus takes them back to Genesis 2, the foundation of marriage, and He shows them God's design from the beginning. That one man and one woman should be joined in an inextricable union. Not to be torn apart. They're not two anymore. They're one flesh. Who did that? Whose union is it? God's. God joined them together. Two parties typically is what people think of in a marriage. You have a man and a wife. No, no, no. There are three parties. When the vows are exchanged and the marriage is consummated, three parties, man, woman, and God, all involved in this union, this covenant. How dare we think that we can so easily and without consequence rip it apart. Jesus says divorce produces adultery. Without justifiable grounds, it's a violation against God's design from the very beginning and He hates it. It should not be viewed with flippancy. It is no joke. It should not even be, you know, that's, you have a considerable option here. You could divorce, you know, and collect your part of the funds. It, it seems to be more of a transaction. It is sin and it angers God. We need to see the devastation of divorce the way that God sees it. We need to repent of the unfaithfulness in our hearts. 
Listen, to threaten your spouse with divorce is to threaten God with breaking His covenant. I would not throw that word out lightly in an argument. Or even, you know, in the greatest of arguments. Divorce should not be seen as a a viable first option. But rather, last resort. Last resort. For only a few exceptions. Only a few. The Pharisees asked, why then, after Jesus just said this, why then did Moses command, they misunderstood that, one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, because of your sin, Moses allowed, he didn't command, he allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. Mankind is unfaithful. Mankind, we are so hardened by sin Divorce is not God's design, and it should be avoided at all costs, but because of sin, there are, listen, two permissible grounds for divorce that we see in Scripture. Two permissible grounds for divorce that we see in Scripture, and I'd like to take some time to explain them, both of them. Jesus gives one in our passage, Matthew 5.32. So, We'll start with that one. That's in our text. Look at 532. There's one exception that Jesus gives. He says, except on the ground of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. The first ground, the first permission to divorce. Now these are two sins, okay, given in Scripture. And these sins do such damage to the marriage covenant that God allows the offended party to separate. Sexual immorality is the first one. It's important to note that what's in view here is a sexually immoral union. This is the act of uniting yourself with another person. I I wouldn't move so quickly to say, well, I caught my husband checking her out. So I have grounds for divorce, right? Didn't Jesus say if you look at a woman lustfully, then you've committed adultery? There, I'm off the hook. No, I wouldn't move so quickly to say that. Yes, your husband is in sin, by the way. And you could call him out on the sin of lustfully looking at a woman. And that needs to be repented of. But the ground for divorce is the act of joining yourself sexually to another. The same word that's used here in Matthew 5 is used in 1 Corinthians 6. And in that passage, Paul talks about joining oneself to a prostitute so that you become one flesh with her. So this is the act of joining yourself to another person sexually. Of course, this is a significant breach of your covenant. This is a significant sin against your spouse. And 1 Corinthians 6 says it's a sin against your own body. You're doing nobody any favors by going down this road. We talked about last week how adultery, you know, we look at the one flesh relationship and we see it as a river. Both the husband's stream and the wife's stream have come together and converged into one flesh river. That means their whole lives are now shared together and viewed in common in this inextricable union. Your finances, 
sexual romance, emotional intimacy, all these things are connected with your spouse. To join yourself with another is to diverge from the one flesh river and join your stream with another sexually. This is adultery. This severs your vow. This destroys your covenant. And in some cases, it does enough damage to lead to divorce. It's, in some cases, an irreparable severance. Divorce produces adultery. And by the way, adultery produces divorce. You should know that no one accidentally destroys their marriage in a one-night stand. There are nights and days, weeks and months of giving in to sexual temptation over and over again that lead to that night. Be warned. Be warned. We just went over a section looking at the lustful intent of the heart leading to adultery, or essentially it's adultery of the heart. But be warned, unchecked adultery in the heart quickly produces adulterous actions which can eventually lead to divorce. It's a destructive path. Don't go down it. Repent of adultery in your heart. Hold fast to your wife or your husband like God designed. Do not, do not commit sexual immorality. Don't even run from it even in your heart so that it does not produce those actions. So that's the first ground for divorce that we see in verse 32. And again, we're not looking at panic buttons. We're not saying, oh, I saw this and so boom, I'm out. No, but it should be considered with much discernment a desire to reconcile, a desire to be restored, but if it cannot be so, and it's due to sexual immorality, then there is a ground for divorce. There's a second ground for divorce that we see in Scripture, and this isn't listed in our passage, but it's given elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians 7, it's the ground of abandonment. A ground in abandonment. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 12, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Look at what the scripture says, not what I say. Even if he or she is an unbeliever. They could be an atheist, an agnostic, or just blatantly disobedient to God's Word. But if they consent to live with you, then you shouldn't divorce. You should remain. You should stay. Avoid divorce at all costs. Note in both of these verses the word consent. Consent. That's an important word. It implies mutual agreement, right? It implies joining in approval. 
Now look at verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, that is to the marriage. God has called you to peace. God has called you to peace. The text is clear. If the unbelieving spouse leaves, physically, not to go to the grocery store, not to sleep on the couch, not even to stay the night at a parent's or a friend's house after an argument, but there's an intention to come back. Paul is talking about abandonment without intention of returning. Leaving. If that is the case, then the remaining spouse is not bound, but they are free to remarry. As I've previously said, we ought not to be quick to throw out the word divorce. These permissions are not to be viewed as a panic button or a quick and easy out. Rather, they should be considered as a last resort. Reconciliation and restoration should always be the aim in the first pursuit. Pursue love, pursue forgiveness. But if it cannot be found on these two grounds, then Scripture allows you to walk away free, unbound, not enslaved, to remarry and not guilty of the sin of adultery. Now, I have an important note. I believe that included in this exception abandonment specifically, and in this passage, there are certain cases of ongoing abuse that if the unbelieving spouse is not living in a consensual way, that verses 12 and 13 describe, or if peace that God has called us to is uh, unable to be grasped, in fact, the antagonist is actively working against peace in a violent way, then I believe there is a ground for that case within the category of abandonment for the victim to be released from the marriage. A ground for divorce in certain cases. Now, every situation has its nuances. Careful discernment is required. Again, this is not a quick and fast panic button. But the victim of abuse ought not to be bound to their spouse in an enslaving or domineering way. Paul says to slaves in verse 21, just a few verses later, if you can gain your freedom, he's looking at, you know, your political rights. If, if you have societal rights and you can gain your freedom, he says, avail yourself the opportunity, right, to the slave. And so victims of abuse have legal rights and protections in society, do they not? to call the authorities, to to report the matter, to have the abuser separated from you, avail yourself of those opportunities and do so quickly according to the law of the land. There are two things, because this issue is so prevalent, there are two things that I want to say to a victim of abuse as we're talking about the issue of divorce and even marriage. Two things that I want to say to the victim of abuse. I want you to know two things. Number one, God is with you and God is for you. God is with you, and God is for you. Psalm 9.9 says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, 
a stronghold in times of trouble. Psalm 103.6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Those are sweet words and a sweet refuge to hold on to for those of you who are a victim of abuse. If you are, trust in the Lord. Look to Him for the righteousness and the justice that you're not seeing or you're not receiving from others. God is with you and He is for you, first thing. But second thing I want you to know is that the shepherds of this church are with you and for you. 1 Peter 5 is our calling. It says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, watching over them. And you think about a shepherd, what do they do? They feed, they nurture, they guide, they correct. But they also sometimes protect the flock, do they not? They need to, from wolves, from the oppressor, from the violent. And so that's part of our job is to protect the flock. And Isaiah 1.17 says this to the people of Israel, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Protecting and correcting is part of the shepherd's job. That's our responsibility. So to the victim... I want you to encourage you to allow us to come alongside you in this way. Support you. God's Word gives us biblical authority and corrective tools to call out sin, to call for repentance, and to seek restoration. Or in some cases, advocate for protection and separation. Please trust God and trust the elders in your oppression, if that is you, and if that is the case. And because that relates to our subject, especially on the grounds of divorce, I thought it was important to use this moment to teach that or to briefly explain it. Biblically, we see two grounds, two major exceptions for divorce. Again, these are not panic buttons, not to be pressed too hastily, but a final resort, a permission from God. Why? Because you and I are sinners. It's because of the hardness of man and woman's heart that these permissions even exist. This is not God's design. This is not God's heart for, for marriage. And He does not desire to see it destroyed. I have one final meditation for us. One final meditation. Considering divorce and looking at our unfaithfulness, I want us to see God's faithfulness. Because some of you have gone through divorce, you've seen the consequences, you've experienced the consequences in your close family, your close friends. There's got to be some good. There's got to be something that we can hold on to. When the world around us is unfaithful, broken, and sin-filled, who can we trust? Who can we lean on? We can trust and lean on a faithful God. Can we not? God is faithful. God is faithful and He is unfailing in His love for us. Exodus 34, verses 6-7 to say this, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Listen, sinner, if you've been unfaithful, turn to the God who can forgive you, who can wash you and make you clean. Turn to the God who's merciful and gracious. Turn to the God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness to counteract your unfaithfulness. Trust in Jesus Christ and His sacrificial death on the cross, atoning for your sin and making you right with God. That's our only hope. A vivid picture of God's unfailing love is in the book of Hosea. Are you familiar with the story? Hosea in the Old Testament is a vivid picture of God's unfailing love. God describes Israel's sin as adultery and abandonment. The two grounds. God says they have whored after false gods and they have abandoned the covenant, my law, that was given to them at Sinai. The Lord commands Hosea as an illustration to take up an adulterous woman as a wife. Imagine that. Imagine the Lord tells you, I want you to go marry someone who, by the way, will be unfaithful to you. Who will break your marriage covenant, break your vows, and they will commit adultery with another. That's exactly what God tells Hosea to do. He marries Gomer, knowing that she would commit adultery against him and sleep with another man. This is an illustration and a picture of how God betrothed himself to his people, the people of Israel. He loved them as a faithful husband would. He redeemed them from slavery, blessed them with so many blessings, yet Israel rejected him. Israel commit adultery. They abandoned the covenant, the relationship. God had two grounds for divorce. He could have ended the relationship, separated, and never talked to him again. But that's not what God does. God keeps His promises. He made a covenant to this people, this sinful people. That He would save them, that He would restore them, that He would wash them, the new covenant. He would wash them of their sins. He would forgive them for their iniquities. And He would restore them in salvation to Himself and restore them to the land and the blessing that they are promised in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31-33 through 33 is a beautiful, beautiful section of Scripture that describes this new covenant relationship, this promise. When we break our promises, God is faithful to keep them. When we are unfaithful, God is faithful. We are awaiting that day in which the people of Israel will be restored, looking forward to that. But we, the church full participants in this same new covenant, we experience the joy and the love of Christ as His redeemed and the forgiven, the bride of a glorious groom. I'm doing a wedding uh, next Sunday and I described this scene. The bride walks down the aisle and she's got, you know, she looks beautiful. She's in a beautiful dress, makeup, presented well. I encourage the congregation at the weddings that I officiate. I say, imagine if this bride walked down the aisle and her makeup was all smeared purposefully. Imagine she doesn't come down in a white dress, but in a a tattered, brown, stained dress. And in fact, imagine she's not even walking down the aisle. She's running in the opposite direction. She doesn't want to be married. 
She's running away from her groom. And imagine this groom had to sprint after her and catch her to bring her back to the altar. There's a picture of what Christ did for us. We were not a worthy, beautiful bride, acceptable in his sight because of all our good things. No, no, no. We were sin-tattered and stained, running away from God, wanting nothing to do with him. And yet Jesus Christ became a man. He was suffered and died on the cross, rose again from the dead to accomplish our salvation. He went after us. He is faithful despite our unfaithfulness. If you don't know the love of Jesus Christ, I plead with you to turn and trust in Him today. And if those of you who do know the love of Christ, the faithful love of Christ, I call you, just as Christ was, to be faithful. Be faithful to your vows. Love your wife. Love your husband as God has called you to. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God merciful and gracious. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, even saying that, I cringe because I remember my unfaithfulness and my sinfulness, my disobedience, my rebellion. Forgive me. Forgive me for my sin. God, I pray that we as your people, called, loved, experiencing your faithfulness, would remain faithful to you, that we would remain faithful to our spouses that you've called us to. Please protect the marriages in this church. Forgetting the past, Lord, and looking forward and, and striving for what's ahead, I pray that you'd protect these marriages that you protect them from sexual immorality, that you protect them from abandonment, that you protect them from abuse, that you would protect them from unfaithfulness, and that we would see marriages in this church flourish, flourish out of an expression of love and gratitude for your love and faithfulness towards them. I pray for the, the person here feeling the weight and conviction of their sin. I pray that they would repent from it and turn and trust in Christ alone for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.